Reading the Bible in a devotional manner has probably been one of the most amazing things that I've ever done in my personal spiritual life. As I read through the Old Testament, I'm continually reminded that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all things. And then when I read through the New Testament, the overriding message I get is the most important thing that anybody can do is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how do we get from the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things to loving God and loving your neighbor? The truth of the matter is, it's impossible unless there's a personal internal transformation of your heart, of your spirit. And that is the story of the Bible. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another fabulous day in the Lord's neighborhood and welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Paige. I am Paige, your caffeine-imbued host. Here's my caffeine. Mm. And they all sang with vigor in the beginning, coffee. And lo, it was very, very good. And it was, and it is. Today, we're going to continue our journey in 2 Samuel. We're up to chapter 6 now. David has been crowned king of Israel and Judah. And now he is he's set up his uh, headquarters in Jerusalem. It's now known as the city of David. And he is going to uh, be bringing the Ark of the Covenant home. Now, this is one of the questions I used to have when I was reading in the Old Testament because the ark is all over, of course, Exodus, and it's what God used, ark and the, and the tabernacle to bring Israel through the wilderness. But once they got into Israel, it kind of disappears. You don't hear much about it. You see a couple comments about, it. well, today we're going we're gonna to look at this a little bit. And, uh, and I was always a little bit sad because the ark of the covenant and the tabernacle played such a huge part in the deliverance of Israel. God used it in such a powerful, mighty way to bring Israel through the wilderness into the promised land. And then it just kind of disappears into the mist. And, uh, well, David is going to bring the ark. Apparently, the ark ended up in one place and the rest of the tabernacle ended up in another place. And David has gone to bring the ark back home because if you remember, the Philistines had stolen it. And uh, they had a lot of problems because of it, so they sent it back home. And so it's been for about 50 years. It's been somewhere else. So let's just take a look at it, chapter 6, and chat a bit about this. And David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim of the ark. All right. Apart from a brief mention in 1 Samuel chapter 4, 14, the Ark of the Covenant has not been mentioned since, oh gosh, maybe 7th chapter of 1 Samuel. David is, in consolidating his reign, is bringing the symbol of the power behind Israel, which is Yahweh, Jehovah, the name, the Lord Almighty, He's bringing that to Jerusalem, and it's going to be a centralization of his government. He's bringing a religious focus 
to the city and to his reign as king. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and they brought it from the house of Aminadab, or Abinadab, which was on the hill. All right, a little history here. For at least half a century, the Ark of the Covenant had been sequestered in Kiriath-Jerim in the house of Abinadab. It was either inaccessible to Israelites because of Philistine control of that area, or it was just languishing in neglect because Saul couldn't have cared less. Saul neglected God. He was not a God-fearing man. He was not a God-chasing man. He, he was not a man after God's own heart. So why should he care about what happens with the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, it had let him down before. They'd gone into battle with it, and they had lost with it. So apparently it was of no use to Saul. He saw the Ark of the Covenant primarily as a talisman, like a magic charm or something. I, but it wasn't. he wasn't a God-fearing man. So he probably just, it was at somebody's house, and that's the way it was. He, he didn't care. Uzziah, Uzzah and Ahiah, sons of Abinadab, all right, they were, Abinadab's had sons, were, carry, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it. Okay, um, problem number one. And Ahiah was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. With castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, cisterns, cymbals, it was a party. The Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of Yahweh, was coming home. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Now the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. All right. Ostensibly, the ark was in danger of falling. So he reached out to grab a hold of it. And it says here, God struck him down. Now, the reason God struck him down was because of his irreverent act of reaching out to steady the ark. Why is that irreverent? Well, it's irreverent because, first of all, this isn't how the ark of God was to be transported. It was supposed to be. It had a. It had poles, and and uh, and loops on either side so that it could be carried on the shoulders of Levites. So that's the way it was supposed to be carried. So it was irreverent, first of all, that they would just put the ark of the covenant into a cart. That's irreverent. Second of all, it says here that his this act of him putting out his hand to hold the ark was irreverent. You know, we're, we're not there. We're, I'm not there. Uh, we didn't see it happen. There might be more to this than just the fact that he put his hand out. Um, have you ever been around people that speak very lightly of God? Um, I've had folks talk to me about God being the, the man upstairs and things like that. And that always makes me uncomfortable because God is not the man upstairs. Um, that That's an act of irreverence to me. He's God. He's a creator of the universe. He is not the man upstairs. 
And when you when you speak of God with that kind of irreverence, that says something about your heart. Because I guarantee you, anybody who has ever had anybody who has ever had an experience with the creator of the universe does not refer to him as the man upstairs. I have friends of mine in the Native American community, all right, and their faith is not the Christian faith. But I don't think I've ever heard any of them refer. Now they have a central God in their in their in their thinking. I've never heard them refer to him with anything but reverence. And yet there are people who call themselves Christians who will refer to him as the man upstairs. He's not the man upstairs. That speaks to your heart. If that's the way you refer to God, there's an irreverence there. And um, you need to address that. When my children were growing up, we taught them to say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. Thank you and please to adults. To address adults, uh, Mr. or Miss or Mrs. and their last name. You don't get the you don't get the right to be in a first name basis with an adult when you're a child. You don't. So I'm thinking Uzza, his irreverent act reflected more than just the fact that he touched the ark or he touched the 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 cart with his hand. There's more to it than that. I think it's a very real possibility he became too familiar and the Ark of the Covenant staying in his father's home it was just no big deal it's the Ark of the Covenant it was at my house oh it's gonna fall down here I'll take care of it and boom God hits him there's more to his irreverent act than just the fact that he touched the Ark with his hand just me thinking with my mouth open David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. You know, why was David angry? Was he angry with God? Himself? Or could he have been angry at Abinadab's household? David is worshiping with all his heart, his all soul, all his mind. He's dancing, there's instruments. Every six steps, there's a sacrifice being given. He is angry when this worship is interrupted by this irreverent act of Abinadab's son. So I don't know. Was he angry with God for doing it? I don't know. Um, Was he angry with himself for not overseeing it more properly? Was he upset with Abinadab for he and his son's attitude of irreverence towards God? I think part of the answer is, well, in verse 9, he says, David was afraid of the Lord that day. So I don't think he was angry at God. I think he was angry at the way things went. But he wasn't angry at God. He was afraid of the Lord that day. 
And he said, how can the Ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the Ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. He was afraid. What if we make more mistakes? What if I bring the Ark of the Covenant into the center of my city, the city of David, and we, and we do something wrong with it? Everybody could be killed. You could see David's mind going in that direction. Instead, says he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, uh, Obed the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went to bring up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So, now, Obed-Edom's house was outside Jerusalem, wasn't very far away. And David, I think, came to his senses realizing that what happened with the Ark before had nothing to do with the ark and everything to do with the irreverence, the irreverent attitude of Abinadab and his sons towards the ark. So David apparently did his homework this time because when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, this time he brings it up correctly on the shoulders of the Levites, had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds uh, and the sound of trumpets. All right. Wow, what a difference between David's attitude towards God and Saul's attitude towards God, his predecessor. Saul just left this thing pretty much locked in a closet for, I don't know, 50 years almost. And David is dancing. David is celebrating. David, and, and David has a proper sense of history. I don't know if you're a history nut or not. I am. And when I am on the site uh, of, uh, that has significant historical settings, I get goosebumps. I've been on the location where Custer's last battle with the, the Sioux was, uh, and I got goosebumps knowing that I am in a place where history was made. I have walked the cobblestone streets of Boston uh, Annapolis, uh, and realizing that these are the very same streets that uh, Benjamin Franklin walked and John Adams and John Quincy Adams, and I get goosebumps. I'm just absolutely, I get sucked into the gravitas of the moment when I'm around something that has great historical value. I saw Mount Rushmore and there was a rush of patriotism that I didn't expect. That's the way it is with me in history. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. The Ark of the Covenant, David gets to view it with his own eyes. The thing, the very thing that God used to bring Israel out of Egypt, through the promised land, through the, through the desert, into the promised land. He's overwhelmed. I think I would be. As the Ark of the Lord is entering the city of David, it says, Michal, or Michael, I wish I knew how to pronounce that name, daughter Saul watched from a window, and when she saw King, Leap, King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. This is a different woman. Um, he's described here as Michal, daughter of Saul. And she's acting like the daughter of Saul. 
Her father despised David. She despises David. She had been married for some time to another man. Her father had taken her from David and given her to another man. And it, she's acting like someone who resents being taken away from her second husband, which wasn't a legal marriage, by the way, because David and her were still married, according to whatever law you have in play. Um, but she's perhaps smarting from being separated from her former husband. And she looks at David leaping and dancing with a whole lot less than the love she had at the time when they got married. She, once she had helped David escape through the window to escape the clutches of her father. And now she looks at him through a window and she despises him. You know, I, I don't know what to make of this except how sad I am for this because she was the first woman that he married. She should have had preeminence in his household as his primary wife. Back then they had multiple wives. That happened all the time. Doesn't mean it's great. Doesn't mean it's a good idea. But usually the first wife is the primary wife. She's the run. She's the one that runs the household and all the other wives are subservient to her. You look at someone like um, uh, Abraham and Sarah, Sarah, primary wife. Then he, in effect, has Hagar as a secondary wife to which he has a son. Um, but Hagar was subservient to the primary wife, Sarah. Michael, Michael or Michael, um, I wish somebody would correct me on that. Tell me what that, how you say that name. She should have been given preferential treatment as being the primary and first foremost wife of David. But she despises him. And she's kind of removed from history. She could have been, uh, if, you're, if you're into this shoulda, woulda, coulda thing, which I'm kind of not, but the opportunity was there for her as a primary wife of David to be the one who gave birth to the lineage that would produce the future Messiah. Of course, she didn't know that. We, we have 20-20 hindsight. We can look back. But opportunity was there for her, and she looked at David and despised him. Now, this also says something about her attitude towards God. It doesn't, the, the Ark of the Covenant means nothing to her, obviously, just like it meant nothing to her father. She has been poisoned by her father, by her father's attitude, and she acts in the same way that her father would have acted if he had observed David doing this. Come on, that's a square box with some gold filigree on it, and it's got a couple cute angels on the top. What's the big deal? That's the sense I get. Now, I have a problem. I have a cinematic mind. I I view things as if it were a movie or, or a video of some kind. And so I'm seeing the disgust in her face as David is dancing. And David isn't just shimmying around. David is jumping. He's leaping. He's praising God. There's instruments 
and he is rejoicing. The Ark of the Covenant has come home to the city of David, and he's won the hearts of the Lord. Uh, he's won the hearts of the people, and he's lost the heart of his first wife. To me, there's sadness there. And sadness because a missed opportunity in Michael's part because she could have been, like I said, she could have been his primary wife. The place was hers by virtue of the fact that she was the first one. Hmm. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. Okay. Ark's brought in. And set in his predetermined place, David had a place prepared for it, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. So apparently, David had pitched a tent primarily to house the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was housed in the back half of a tent of the tabernacle. It's called the holy place. And then the most holy place in the back was where the Ark of the Covenant was. Um, down the road, a little bit later, we're going to find that Another tabernacle gets constructed and it's installed at a high at the high place in Gibeon outside of Jerusalem. And this is this is the part that's kind of nostalgic and sad for me because the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle, which placed which played such a huge part in the history and the deliverance of Israel, kind of fades into the mist of time. Uh, he builds another tabernacle, but the Ark of the Covenant stays with him in Jerusalem. And the rest of the furnishings inhabit the tabernacle that he builds for them. And it's split up. And history has not yet revealed what happened to the candlesticks, the lampstands, the, the altar of incense, table of showbread, etc. The, the bronze altar. It, it doesn't we don't know what happened to that. It just poof, vanishes. Its purpose was completed. God built the tabernacle and all the furnishings of the tabernacle, which includes the Ark of the Covenant, to pull Israel through the wilderness into the Promised Land. And its purpose was completed and it's only right that it vanishes. To this day, we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. We don't know where any of the, the tabernacle parts and pieces and furniture are. There's no need for it anymore. I remember when I was reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And I read through all, I think, six or seven books in that series. And at the end of the last one, I rejoiced because... The series was over. They had fought the final battle. They had defeated evil one last time, and now they were forever in the land of Narnia with, with Aslan. But part of me was sad because I really felt the power and the majesty of those great adventures. And I'm sad that it was over because I didn't want the story to stop. But every good author has an end to a good story. The end of the story for the tabernacle is here. David takes the Ark of the Covenant 
puts it in Jerusalem where he is, in a special place. And the rest of the tabernacle goes to a place in Gibeon where it kind of just slowly vanishes through the mists of time. And this is the last you hear of it. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty, and he gave each a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins in the whole crowd of Israelites, to everybody in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. Now, it says here that David blessed the people. He's acting in the role as a priest. All right, so he's a shepherd, he's a king, and now he acted in the role of a priest. He is combining all the three primary leadership roles in his monarchy. Priest, king, right? And shepherd. He's an amazing man. Not perfect, we're going to find that out, but he is amazing. So when David returned home to bless his new house, his household, Michal, Michael, ah, somebody help me with this daughter of Saul came out to meet him and said, oh, and you just have to realize the sarcasm here, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. In fact, she's accusing him of acting like a drunkard, dancing in his underwear. It wasn't that gross. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. Ooh, David isn't above supplying some cutting words of his own. It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. He's reminding her, God set your father aside, chose me. I will celebrate before the Lord. <laughs> I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Whew. And with those words, David puts Saul's daughter in her place. And I think probably that was the end of any hope of their marriage producing anything of value. And he reminds her in putting her in her place, you're the wife of the king, that's true. But you're the daughter of the man that God removed from the throne. It's sad that he had to remind her that he had to use those words. I, I get in my, in my heart, I get the sense that David was willing to love her, but this was the last straw. She was not only showing derision and disrespect to him as a man, her husband, and the king of Israel, but by virtue of the fact of why he was doing what he was doing, she was showing massive disrespect to the God of Israel. She was a lot more like her father than perhaps she was at the beginning of their marriage. And the saddest words are heard next. And Michael, daughter of Saul, 
had no children to the day of her death. No descendants. Saul's line is finished. No descendants of Saul. Jonathan, all his sons, gone. Now Michael, Michael, Sarah, uh, David's wife, does not bear children. And in that culture, to not have children was a major source of reproach. Some people even considered a judgment from God. And with that, Saul's daughter just goes away into the midst of time. We don't hear about her again. Uh, I don't know what happened to her. I don't know if David dismissed her from his house or if he just, uh, she stayed, but no children. I don't know if she didn't have children because God closed her womb or because David refused to have marital relations with her. Don't know. It's just, we just know that there were no children from her from that point on. In fact, I don't think there were any children with her before. So there's a lot of sadness in this chapter. But we're seeing David start to bring the things together that make Israel in the coming generations a great, great nation. We see David becoming truly a priest, a king, and a shepherd. Isn't that cool? He's acting in role as a priest, a king, and a shepherd. Um, a very unique man. All right, tomorrow we will continue on chapter 7. This is a good place to stop. On page, here is my caffeine. And lo, it's still very good. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. So, what did you think about today's Bible devotional? Email me and let me know your thoughts at ffog at me.com.